the worst case scenario that we're doing by improving that neck strength is that we're hopefully mitigating injury around the cervical spine, which is a large contributor um, to injuries, particularly within grappling. And that allows these athletes to spend more time training because they're spending less time being injured. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. After what looked like an amazing presentation a couple of weeks ago at the Australian Strength and Conditioning Association, I'm delighted to get on Strength and Conditioning Director at UFC, Gavin Pratt, on this episode today. So it's all about neck strengthening. It's all about mechanisms of neck injury and concussions and how it relates to training and testing in the UFC, yes, but how that translates to other sports such as American football, um, to rugby, any collision sports that we can again learn from the UFC. So training, hypertrophy, uh, strength, rate of force development, endurance, what kind of tests they do, how they've developed their next strengthening protocol. So much happens in this episode. So if you're in a collision sport or just looking to upgrade your knowledge on neck strengthening and why we need to do that for various different reasons, check out this episode. It's an absolute winner and I'll hand you over straight to Gavin. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by RockDaisy. RockDaisy's athlete management system provides a powerful competitive advantage to elite sports leagues around the world. If you're looking for a solution that enables you to centralize, analyze, and visualize your data, check out rockdaisy.com and sign up for a free trial. Also sponsoring this podcast is Vald. So I'm really proud to have Vald as a sponsor again. And after a recent visit to Vald HQ in Brisbane for their annual Vildcon event, it's incredible to see how far they've come as a company since I last visited uh, at the start of 2018. So from a very humble office of less than 20 employees back then, it's amazing to see how far they've come. They now employ a global team of more than 200 that support clients across 100 countries including many of the world's elite and professional sporting organizations. So an incredible uh, rise to where they are now. This is a huge testament to just the impact they're having across the industry with their innovation, but also continued commitment to support clients. So if you're a performance practitioner, you probably know all about VALD, but if not, I'd recommend that you check them out at valdperformance.com. So without further ado, over to the episode with Gavin. Gavin Pratt, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast. It's long overdue and it's a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much for having me, Rob. It is long overdue, mate, so I'm really looking forward to chatting. Nah, thank you for giving up some of your time because I know you're, uh, you're a very busy, very busy man going here, there and everywhere. But um, anyone doesn't know who you are, would you mind just giving us a uh, little brief bio? Sure. So right now I am the Director of Strength and Conditioning for the UFC Performance Institute. And just previously, I was the manager at the Shanghai Performance Institute in China. So um, it was a good opportunity to sort of set up an academy program over there. And, and now it's sort of more of directing the global strategies of strength and conditioning. Nice, mate. I, I visited Vegas um, just before COVID, I think, and Duncan showed me around, as I'm sure he's done a lot of times with people requesting um, <laughs> requesting visits. But how does China differ to Vegas? So the facility is three times the size of the Vegas one in China, um, and the the gym 
is fairly similar in terms of we've got six racks, um, three force plate platforms. Um, we've got a turf area which allows for a cage or octagon to be dropped onto the turf. And then there's an auditorium style set up with stairs where the, the crowd can actually watch those fights. And we're fortunate enough to have that occur for the first time uh, just recently, mid, midway through this year in 2023. And we had the start of the Road to UFC competition in the actual facility. So that was super cool. Um, upstairs, we also have all the technical floor, but the main difference is that the academy program is run out of Shanghai and that in, that means that we have technical coaches in-house that we talk with and discuss strategy every single day. And that that's just such a benefit for us in terms of the non-technical training space. Nice, mate. What did you do before UFC? Uh, so I've been working as a strength coach since 1998. Um, I was working with Australian Rules Football. I had my own business in personal training, managed the gym. Uh, I was a TV presenter for 10 years in Australia on the side. Whoa, so, whoa, uh, whoa, so whoa, whoa, yeah, whoa, whoa. there's all sorts, mate. My life is very <laughs> unique like that. <laughs> <laughs> so TV presenter, do like tip presenting what? Uh, so, well, I guess uh, to to sort of how it came about, I went to um, the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts, which is a university in Western Australia where like Hugh Jackman went. He did more the theatre and stage side of things and I did broadcasting and radio and TV. So that was a three-year degree, um, bachelor's. And then immediately after finishing that, I, I jumped into the TV space, got a gig presenting. I think it was on like mining and resources and things like that. And so it wasn't exactly up my alley, but it got me in the door. And then we turned that show into uh, more of a lifestyle and um, holiday sort of program. So going to visit places around Australia and assessing what that little town does. Wow, yeah. I feel like you should be on this side of the camera. I, I, I shouldn't. I definitely shouldn't be on that side, but you right. should be on this side. <laughs> I, I, I can't with this haircut anymore. My my days were numbered. Nice, nice. Right, we're gonna the the, the crux of the conversation is gonna be based basically because I stalked you off the back of your ASCA presentation, which seemed to go down a dream. And I asked mm -hmm. a couple of the people that I knew who were also presenting who are the people we should have on the podcast based on the presentation and your name came up and I've asked you the same question. So we'll get some, uh, we'll get some of the people on, on here as well who presented the ASCA, but to set the scene, some mechanisms for, for neck injury and, and preferred on that concussion in the UFC. Um, would you mind just giving us a bit of a, a, a kind of base for us to for jump off from when we'll go into next strength, next strengthening training and then testing as well off the back of it. Is that all right? Of course. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Absolutely. Mechanisms, so mechanism neck injury that you come across daily, I'm guessing. Yeah. So I guess the main thing starting here was, you know, one of the main ways to win in mixed martial arts is by knockout or technical knockout. So the target literally is to knock your opponent out. And when I started in MMA as a strength and conditioning coach, I realized there wasn't actually much being done trying to prevent that. It was all about causing the effect, but if it happened to be you on the unfortunate side of that, what were we doing about it and from a strength perspective? And so that's what led me down this path. The the UFC Cross-Sectional Analysis Volume 2, which is a free online resource, around 500 pages, has broken down the injury mechanisms um, and, and rates as well. And what we've found that, let's say, let's use grappling training, whether it's um, jiu-jitsu-based or wrestling, uh, floor or fence, uh, 
what we've seen is that the greatest mechanism of injury in grappling training is well, not mechanism, but resultant is actually through the cervical spine. So that's that's around 16, 17% of injuries are around the cervical spine when it comes to grappling training. Uh, in addition to that, we also have uh, a higher rate of um, long-term issues with the cervical spine, and, and that uh, equates to about 6 to 7%. So all in all, out of all the injuries within grappling, 23% of them relate to the cervical spine. That's a fairly high percentage. Uh, with regards to striking, concussions seem to be quite high as well, uh, as you can imagine. So that got us to thinking, well, how can we help minimise this for the athletes to basically give them more time on the mats, getting better at the skills and the sport that they're trying to be professionals or elite professionals in? And that also leads to, well, can we decrease concussions by improving neck strength? The answer to that second part is we're still working that out. So the worst case scenario that we're doing by improving that next strength is that we're hopefully mitigating injury around the cervical spine, which is a large contributor um, to injuries, particularly within grappling. And that allows these athletes to spend more time training because they're spending less time being injured. I watched one of your... Um... I think it was on Instagram. There's some cool productions on your Instagram, by the way, in the lead up to that ASCA, <laughs> ASCA event. So good work, whoever's behind that. And obviously you're in front of the camera as well. Um, you mentioned around forces that the, the head and neck is exposed to in these various different um, scenarios in, in mixed martial arts. You mind just, again, uh, setting the scene for us on that? Yeah, this is really new, exciting data, actually. And, and what we've found, we've been working with the Protect Mouthguards from the Sports Wellness Analytics crew in the UK. And they've come over to Vegas and utilized mouthguards with uh, UFC fighters, both in sparring and actually some competition data as well. And the whole point of it was actually around heart rates. And that's looking really exciting. Um, but we wanted to also see what forces were being utilized so they were very kind in giving that data out and it's it's so new that what we're finding is that not only are the g-forces for most strikes between 10 and 40 g-forces those strikes are often thrown at around uh around 300 milliseconds actually around 100 to 150 milliseconds so they're super super fast um and the forces that are extracted from that whether it's linear or rotational forces Let's look at linear. They, they can be anywhere from, there's a big range, but basically looking at the different strikes, they could be 1,300 to up to 2,500 newtons of force per strike. Now, if you think of a fairly poor to average isometric mid-thigh pull, that's about the same amount of force that you're pulling through that. That's through one strike, let alone a combination. When you're looking at rotational forces, the, the equivalent, uh, you're going to be looking at around 200 newton meters up to 300 newton meters and as an example um rebecca summers the manager here at um, vegas and i got on the exafly with the app and put an iron neck onto it and we were doing rotational work to see what torque we could produce per rep and <laughs> on one rep i managed to get 22 newton meters of force I'm like, we're a fair way off getting uh, up to two to 300 of this, so we're going to have to look at how we do this, and that's where we're looking at potentially accumulating these forces within a set and then within a session and then across a week and a month to try and improve that, that ability to accept the forces because ultimately what we're trying to do is stabilise the head, 
so that we decrease the acceleration that that has, has because that's what's causing concussion. So is there any way you could maybe get a little bit closer to that? Yeah, in so terms of, I, in terms of the absolute forces per absolute, repetition. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I mean, we're, we're in the process of working on that now. Definitely statically, we're able to do that. So one way that we've done that is through a neck harness static strength and we'll, we'll tie up the dynamometer from valve or whatever it is and then we can actually register how many newtons of force is going statically through your neck at that time and then maybe we're going to accumulate that force um probably easier to do it statically than dynamically i guess at this stage is what it seems like but they're the sort of experiments that we're now moving on to because before maybe a few months ago we didn't actually know what actual specific forces were coming through the, the neck and the head from a strike and now we have that information we're sort of going to start reverse engineering that a little bit and working out the best ways to approach it because the instrumented instrumented mouth guards are getting airtime in, in rugby because of you know naturally mm. why did mm -hmm. you go with the guys you went with and what is the data in terms of valid, validity and reliability are you guys happy with that to pursue i'm guessing you are to pursue the work that you do in this area yeah, so the, the selection of um, sports wellness analytics is above my pay grade. I'm not I'm yeah. not sure why, but they're fantastic. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, they've been really good. And I think often the, the main thought, like I was saying, was it's around heart rates using the capillaries of the gum to, to measure that. And there seems to be some really exciting uh, direction with that um, and some really good validity and reliability towards it. The forces, um, TBD. We're in that process and I think that's one of the biggest things for people who are listening to this need to remember is that this is really quite a new approach and we're fairly open to feedback and discussions because it's it's not about us, it's about what's best for the athlete and if we close that conversation off, then we're not doing them the, the service that they need. And I think for me, one of the priorities about targeting this was there is no gold standard at the moment in terms of testing in the literature there's a lot of people doing that and a lot of people doing it this way but there's no crossover or linking and then the strategies as to how to approach neck strengthening are not linked either so one one group might focus on maximal force and then say that that doesn't work but you need a reactive component as well based on the literature so these other group might work on reactive component but forget about making them strong first and so of course it doesn't work that's strength and conditioning 101 get them strong first then make them more reactive or dynamic that's how we work in squats or benches and sports performance but for whatever reason the literature with the neck has not followed that pathway so hopefully we do it yeah absolutely i mean in terms of the heart rate and the instrumented mouth guards that that's really exciting because obviously wearing a heart rate monitor is just off i'm no mixed martial art expert but i'm guessing that's just off limits you're looking for an alternative that's integrated within something that you already wear day to day anyway which is a which is a mouth guard Exactly. So that, that's, that's exciting. I can. Yeah, I didn't realize that's why you went down that route in the first place, and and the the force is something that came off the back of it. So it seems like that could be integrated within many different sports from a heart rate perspective, because all athletes hate wearing hate wearing heart rate monitors. Yeah, yeah. And for MMA, we the way we've been getting away with it, say in what we call a Shark Tank, which is more your fight simulation, we've put the heart rate monitor on and then just had to tape them up because they're going to get into grappling scenarios. And look, it's worked, but you can't use that in a 
competition. So we know ha- we have no competition data around heart rates until these mouth guards have come in. So that that's that's the exciting piece for us. Um, you know, the the thing with it is we could look at things like GPS, right? It doesn't associate with our sport because if you're in a isometric or static grappling scenario, you're not going anywhere, but your heart rate's going through the roof. So it's kind of irrelevant. So this is where heart rates are quite good. And then you can look at time motion analysis based on positions, time spent at distance, time spent offensive, defensive. And and this is the future for us. So you mentioned there about testing. So to get an idea of where an athlete's at on, in terms of this topic, what testing do you put your guys through? So we use um, a fixed frame dynamometer. Uh, we have played around um, with a quadruped position because that's what was suggested in the literature, and that is a valid way to do it. Um, we found that the reliability with our cohort wasn't so high because they were able to find ways to cheat. If you're not cheating, you're not trying. So we can understand that. So we we changed it from quadruped position to a lying position in all four force vectors. So flexion, extension, and lateral flexion left and right. So we'll lie the athlete down and there'll be particular um, components to that, like feet come up, can't come off the floor, hands have to be across the chest or whatever, so you can't utilize them. And it's been a really reliable and valid approach for us to measure that static neck strength. Then what we'll do, not just look at absolutes, per weight class so we've done enough testing now where we can actually go into say 170 pounds which is welterweight we can look at the athlete who's just tested their neck strength in those four force vectors and look at every single specific force vector and say you're actually above below or on the average for your weight class for each of those four force vectors and then as an SNC coach, we can then look at the ratios behind that so you might find when we look at flexion to extension the literature is saying to us that we need at least 0.6 to 1 flexion extension to decrease the risk of concussion. Anything there and below, we're going to increase that risk for the athlete. So first things first, we look at that absolute strength. Are they strong enough? Yes. Okay, well, then your ratios matter. So that's the first one. Then we'll look at flexion to lateral flexion, which in the literature, again, is supposed to be around one-to-one, but we found that with our athletes, our cohort athletes, they use their lateral flexors so much for grappling that it was kind of irrelevant. Their lateral flexors were so strong that we actually needed to change that to 0.8 to 1 to make it relevant to our sport. And that only came through the amount of data that we were receiving um, and just looking at how high those absolute numbers were in flexion. So I guess there's two components to it. What, what's their absolute strength and then what are those appropriate ratios? So we could have a really nice ratio of 0.8 to 1 flexion to extension, but both of them are below the average in terms of absolute strength. So the ratio doesn't really matter. We just need to work on either static or slow dynamic strength to improve that foundational base of strength that they have. Um, just on a sort of side note, it's really important that whilst we're calling it neck strength training, the mechanism we're actually looking at is the trunk neck head complex or the coupling. That's actually what we're looking at, but calling it a neck test is much uh, easier, rolls off the tongue a little bit easier than trunk neck head. So what we did here was we looked at the maximal voluntary contraction of, say, the erectors during a neck extension test on the force frame. And we found that the erectors were engaging up to 80% of their maximal voluntary contraction during the neck extension test, which kind of shows that it's not just a pure neck test, but 
these muscles are involved in that extension movement and it also combines that trunk neck head coupling so it is actually testing what we want it to test so that's good it's just being aware that you're not truly calling it a neck test there are other components involved which is great but it's just the understanding of that so long story long rob basically what we have what we're looking for uh, absolutes and ratios and then as coaches we're going to use the ufcpi's neck matrix to attack our programming which is going to be static strength first if their static strength is below the absolute numbers we need once we've gone through a block of that we'll then move into slow dynamic strength because we're trying to improve the hypertrophy behind those musculature of the neck because we do need to make sure that we're measuring the ratio of the neck circumference neck length head circumference and tying all that in basically you don't want a lollipop head it's going to increase the risk of concussion if they then retest and their absolute scores are good and their ratios are quite good, you can then move on to fast dynamic strength, moving things quicker, concentric, eccentric, underload because you've got better postural ability because of the phases we just went through, and then finally reactive strength as well. Now, that might be a combination of not just exercises but also implementing some neurocognitive work such as hand-eye coordination, response inhibition, those types of things as well. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot to unpack, but that's kind of our process, I guess, uh, in a broad speaking sense. I can't write quick enough. I can't write quick enough. <laughs> I'm probably speaking too write. quick, mate. So. <laughs> no, no, you're all good. So good, so good, so good. So you use the force frame the fixed as a, fi- as a fixed frame. Is there any, any work been done with handhelds, dynos? Uh, yeah, yeah. So some studies are showing dynos and um, – I guess with all those tests, it will depend on the practitioner, right? That's that's sort of why we've stayed away from it, the the reliability of it depending on who's enforcing that test. However, because if you can fix that to a rack or something, then that's just as useful. I was having a chat at the ACA conference with a couple of guys who are really into this space um, and we we're talking about potentially what needs to happen in much like skin folds. So the DEXA is the gold standard then if you don't have a DEXA, maybe you do skinfold calipers. And if you don't have calipers, maybe you do hip-to-waist ratio. You know, we need to sort of almost come up with a, right, the gold standard is fixed-frame dynamometry uh, using something like Kangatak or Valve. Uh, if you don't have that, then maybe you use a dynamometer and this is how you would set that up. Now, if you don't have that, what's the next thing that we might be able to use? Who knows? Maybe there's a phone that you could utilize pushing against the head. I don't know what's happening, but you know, that that's probably the thought process. But we need to make sure that we get – almost like a gold standard of testing for the neck across the board. And then we can contrast and compare and actually work out what's relevant. So in terms of something without tech, in terms of uh, relatively expensive tech, there's no real option for those with zero budget? There's not an option for testing, but what I would suggest is that that neck matrix is a really good opportunity to progress an athlete through – neck strengthening so if you start statically the benefit of that is that you're going to be able to see if the athlete can maintain a correct posture for a long period of time endurance of the neck muscles is really key and i'll just sort of add to this uh what we did see in the data from the mouth guard was that as the rounds progressed there were less strikes being thrown but there were more forces being taken by the athlete now that could be two things that could be the fact that um the opponent is saving up for that one big knockout shot because they're tired and they want to conserve energy. It's like, oh, here we go, my maximal effort. I'm just going to swing for the bleachers. 
or it could be that the body isn't able to accept the the forces as well so more force is actually being transferred through the body because they're under fatigue as well so strength endurance is actually a key part of it and that's where the static block could be really useful for those um, people without technology and then it just makes strength and conditioning sense right you go from a static position and then let's move through with load controlled load making sure you know how to move the neck properly with load against it once you have that down pat maybe we just move those same exercises but faster and once you have that down pat now let's bring in a reactive component and can you still maintain that head position in space so it's now just about the problem without testing is or what where is my athlete's deficiency? Is it inflection, extension, or rotation, or lateral flexion, right? We don't know because we haven't tested. So maybe you're just going to have, if you've got three sessions a week with them, maybe you just have to spread across flexion, extension, and then my laterals on day three, and you're sort of covering all bases. When you mentioned about the neck length circumference and head circumference, is there any particular ratio there that you guys are looking for? Um, not yet. That's okay. what we're sort of accumulating. So that'll be the next step for us to sort of work out what, what actually matters, particularly in our sport. Obviously, the, the basic understanding is if you've got a big head and a thick neck, you're going to decrease your concussion risk. Like think of Mike Tyson, the perfect example, right? Yeah, that's I've someone. Watched some on Instagram today, actually. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. someone that you. That's that's the kind of thought we're having. That that's the ultimate or optimal. And then obviously, if you think of a, a lollipop head, that's the least optimal. And so, I guess we're just trying to validate that. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Gavin. Hope you enjoyed part one. So again, we're going down the track of training. So we're developing what we discussed in part one with hypertrophy, strength, rate of force development, endurance. We also get some of the neurocognitive information, how that is developed when it comes to neck strengthening from Gavin as well. And we have a little chat on what other sports can learn from these protocols and these training methods that the UFC, Gavin and the UF guys at UFC implement. So really interesting part two coming up. This episode of the Pace of Performance podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The powerhouse platform increases efficiency, saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's a perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. Team Builder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple match tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with Team Builder's in-house sports scientists to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with promo code SPORTSMITH to start your 30-day free trial. And now back to the episode with Gavin. So the neck, ma- neck matrix, let's go into that. So the, the, the static side of things. So when it comes to exercise selection and, and programming for, for that particular block, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll tend to look at uh, long isometric holds to start with, and then maybe they're shortened with a greater intensity added to the exercise. So as an example, we'll have a neck harness lean for flexion. So the um, harness is behind you. You're keeping your chin in a position where the back of your neck is straight. So we've got a good head neck position there. Sometimes we use like a little 
stress ball under the chin and see if they can hold that position there for time. If they get to a point where the ball drops out, it usually means they've lost their position, sets over. If we can accumulate time in that position, then we're starting to be able to look at the endurance and maximal strength, I guess, in a static hold, which means, okay, you've ticked that box. We can then move on to more of a dynamic type movement in a slow controlled area. So depending on where your deficiency is, that would be obviously someone who has a flexion deficiency. You can do it facing the harness for extension and you can do it on your side, standing on your side for lateral. Well, maybe we stand with two feet on the floor for lateral first and then you take a leg off the ground and increase the forces that, that you're applying because you've now got a single limb on the ground, increasing the force and starting to accumulate those forces we're likely to see within competition. Is there any particular factor that, that the athletes are commonly deficient in or does it just vary between athletes? Um, within MMA, flexion is definitely showing the, the least um, um, or the greatest deficiency. Uh, but it will also depend on their background. So a lot of grapplers um, have extremely slong, strong um, lateral flexion, um, like ridiculous. Uh, I guess I guess the other thing is it's a really cool way for us to flag injury as well. We did have an athlete who had um, a really nice profile and then got um, a little injury going for a submission move in the fight. And he, he said he heard his neck just go dunk, 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 dunk. Uh, and when we tested him about four weeks later, he was still bugged a little bit by it. And as an example, he had 180 newtons of force inflection, about 250 in extension, 250 in lateral on the right, and 90 on the left. And so you're like, right, we've got to have a discussion with our sports med team. There, there's a, a massive neurological issue here, and that's um, uh, it's just giving more direction for us to help improve or mitigate those injuries. So next is the slow dynamic. Just take it, take us through your thought mm-hmm. process, exercise selection. Oh, before I do that, actually, so the long ISOs on the static, are we just going as long as until failure occurs, or are we going? Are we kind of starting somewhere and having an aim in mind? I, I usually say for two reasons: thirty seconds is usually the longest period we'll put on there, and and it's. Purely from a logistic standpoint, you should only really need to hold that position for 30 seconds to show us that you can. Um, the athlete's going to get bored if it goes any more than that as well. Um, but you could also add in um, very light dumbbell lateral raises or calf raises to that to, to increase the intensity of that 20 to 30 seconds. So there's some things that we've added in from a remedial perspective or to challenge the athlete. Um but I guess to progress that, you can also, let's say we use um, like an iron neck or a harness on, on a Kaiser machine, we'll do maybe if lateral flexion um, or the lateral strength is the issue, we will hold them in position and then they need to walk laterally away from the cable picking up that load as they go. Now, the neck is still being strong in a static position. So we're not changing the static component of that. But what we are doing is we're introducing a greater complexity for that trunk neck head coupling. They all have to now work together a little bit more because everything underneath the neck is starting to be a little bit more dynamic. So that's one of the ways we progress athletes in the static component of that neck matrix. Before I interrupt myself, Let's move on to the slow, slow dynamic. <laughs> I just got so many notes. I'm just, I'm just looking. So the yeah. slow, slow dynamic. Talk us, talk us through that. Yeah. So this is like your your general isotonic lifts, basically. So we are trying the the aim of this 
phase is to improve isotonic strength, looking at concentric, eccentric muscle actions under load, under control. It doesn't have to be done quickly, but the aim is basically how heavy can you lift to keep in good technique. That's that's standard S&C, right? So as an example of using that iron neck with the lateral walkouts, maybe this time we actually station the person on the spot and then we just look at rotations under load and the whole point of that block is just to increase that load that you're lifting by changing the repetition scheme or just by going three sets of eight each side and then over the course of three weeks just try and bump that weight up, progressive overload. But one of the things that we do use in that rotation movement to again challenge that trunk neck head coupling is instead of standing them, we'll basically chop them off at the knees and make them kneel. And so the next join up from that to help stability is from the hips and the glutes, which you know technically you could consider the trunk. So now we haven't got the feet, ankles and knees helping us support stability. It's got to come immediately from the, from the glutes, hips, trunk, core, that we're going to actually help that stability. And so now we're going to enhance that complexity again with that trunk neck head coupling mechanism but it's still from a neck position the same movement so some challenges there so the the iron neck obviously has come up multiple times what is it about that particular bit of kit that makes it so fit for purpose for what you what guys want to do in in, in this scenario uh rotation it's it's fantastic for a rotational component um it's quite comfortable on the head as well so you know put the iron neck on pump it up like the old school reebok pumps and then it gets it tight around your forehead and 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 it's just a comfortable way to do it but if you're not looking at rotation say you can use neck harnesses so let's say extension is your um, deficiency when you test well you you can look at um putting on a harness and attaching a kettlebell to that and working just into that extension range as well so there's there's plenty of options that you can use i guess it comes down to um not only creativity but understanding why you're selecting that exercise it's based on deficiency it's based on ratios it's based on absolute strength it's based on equipment that you have available it's based on logistics whether the athlete likes it or not. So there's a lot of components that go into these selections. Superb. Next one, fast dynamic. What does that look like? Yeah. So so I guess I'm trying to keep a rhythm here, I guess, with the exercises. So let's think of rotation again um, and where the slow dynamic strength, we're looking at standing maybe and looking at rotating as heavy as possible. Now the goal might be if we're using a Kaiser um, to decrease that load a little bit and increase the concentric portion of it so that we might actually be able to get a power reading on the Kaiser and, and look at um, what what did you output. And so the goal is every rep is to move that thing as fast as you can and then control it back eccentrically and then as fast as you can. Now that's concentric. This is where the flywheels have come in to be really beneficial for us is we're now going to be able to monitor that eccentric speed, that fast dynamic strength. So um, there's two ways you can do it with those, um, I guess, uh, more technical tools, but if you don't have ability to that, let's just use a band. So if we work through static strength with a band, a super band that you might use for chin-ups, you can just step out and hold that position for 20 to 30 seconds. You move on to slow dynamic strength. Maybe we have a step out and hold. Now we can't increase the the load per se unless you step out further. So you can increase it that way. And then when you look at a fast dynamic strength version of that, it's literally you could hop out, bump, bump, and then reset. 
step out, hop out faster at a faster muscular speed because ultimately that's what we're looking at. The muscular contraction speed is what we're sort of changing with the addition of that external load. Cool. And I suppose that those people are listening, I think, are pretty getting in their head now where this is going in terms of reactive strength. But take us, take us there with that example. Absolutely. This is this is the cool cool piece. Um, you can that the idea here is for us to improve our, um, I guess, our ability to anticipate. So our anticipatory muscle activation is key during this phase. So not only do we want to be able to engage that trunk neck head coupling mechanism quickly, we need to be able to do it with force. So it's just like a reactive strength index. You've got to be strong to be able to express force, but you've got to now be able to do it quickly. That's what the reactive phase is for. And so this is where you can use things like bungee cords. Um, you can use reactive drills as well as those cords. So we do one where we get the athlete to, we call out colors. They have to come out to that color with the iron neck and the bungee cord on, take two shot combo, whatever they want, get back and then react to our directions as to which way they're going to go. So basically what happens there is at the end range, flexion, all the flexor muscles of the neck are engaged right at that end range where they're often going to go into a contest and need that reactive component during those um, combinations. The, the other thing that we're trying to train here is something called the startle reflex. And it's obviously very central nervous system based, but it can be trained. And it's about the best way to think about it is if you're walking down the hallway and your mate jumps out behind and scares you and you're like, yeah, that's the startle reflex, right? That's basically the speed that we need these things to contract with force. So you can understand that if you have no force behind that reaction, it doesn't really matter. You're going to have head accelerations. That's why we build this matrix in. So now let's assume we've got the forces. Now we've got to be able to improve that startle reflex utilizing those forces. And so thinking of that, it's not always known what the movement is going to be. So you might have a band. Let's say you have no equipment, but you've got a super band again and you attach it to your athlete's head depending on the force vector that you're trying to improve. Maybe it's flexion. So you stand behind them. They need to hold on to their position. But the key here is they don't know when you're pulling that band. So as soon as you pull that band, they've got to try and engage those muscles like a startle reflex as quick as possible. But what we're trying to get them to do is relax that as soon as possible as well. So as a coach, you might start with very rhythmical pulls just to get them used to that movement. Then you're going to make it very random with the pulls, not just in terms of the timing, but in terms of the forces that you give them as well. Um, and then after that, you can potentially change the angle at which you're pulling out as well. So it's all flexion, but maybe it's flexion at 45, 35, 10 degrees, all that sort of stuff. And so they don't know which angle they're going to be pulled at, but they have to try and engage and then relax, engage and then relax, because that's more likely to be associated with the sport itself. What influence is that, that muscle activation having on the risk of concussion? Uh, so a great example of that is um, there was a, I, I often mention this because I feel like it's the clearest study that's given us um, so far. It was in soccer and they looked at head stabilization between males and females, football players, and males were able to stabilize their head better than females, but females were able to engage their SCMs faster and to a greater percentage of their maximal voluntary contraction than males. So what that's saying is speed is – important but it's not quite as important as the forces 
So if you've got a, an ability to create force and strength and stability in that trunk neck head coupling mechanism, that's actually at the moment more important. Now, once you've got that, well, it doesn't matter if you've got that force and you can't express it quickly. So that's where now we need that reactive component. But it, it kind of shows, Rob, that why you need to follow a process and not just go into the cool stuff of reactive component because if there's no force behind it, it doesn't matter. And that's what that study sort of showed us. You mentioned a neurocognitive um, just explain to us what that means and how that's this integrated within this um, the neck matrix and how you'd go to isolate that and, and develop it. Yes, that's sort of like a little side path, right? So we, we test um, using a neurocognitive program called SnapTech and we'll look at response inhibition, uh, hand-eye coordination and reaction time as they relate to MMA based on the literature the most. So we utilize those three tests. From that, we can actually profile the athlete and see where, where they're most efficient with those particular tools and then we'll, we'll implement a training program within their training program to help whatever it is they're deficient in. From what I've been reading, and I'm certainly no expert in this particular area, but in terms of visual stimulus and inputs, there's basically two components, which is um, distal and ventral. So distal looks at um, recognizing patterns or recognizing what that particular thing is. And then the ventral is the, okay, so what, how do I react to that? And the speed of that so we can look at things like all right that's a square oh, that's also a square so now i'm reading patterns or if his shoulder does that that probably means he's going to throw a right cross i'm recognizing patterns but we need the other component to say okay well you saw the shoulder what are you going to do about it and that's more your reaction time and your response inhibition because if he moves his shoulder this way he's actually fainting he's not throwing a shot so i don't need to react to that one so they're two components from a visual stimulus that, that, that come into our programming and by improving that speed, that's going to help those anticipatory muscles anticipate that, that component and, and hopefully improve that reflex or startle reflex response as well. Sorry to jump around a bit, but you mentioned the, the trunk, neck, head um working together in a lot of these scenarios is there any scenario where you'd want to just isolate like truly isolate one of them components versus having them work kind of synergistically i think probably when it comes to the mobility of particularly the neck and, and creating function of the neck that would be important so um it's like anything, if you improve your flexibility too much, you potentially increase the risk of injury. So I'm not saying we need like this bobble head that sits on the dashboard of the car, but we certainly need function, particularly in, in grappling and striking. You need to be able to see things coming. So I'd say that would be one of the areas that we would look at. And then obviously if you, you break down sport, then kinetic linking is a larger sort of thing in terms of power production. And so thinking about um, core strength, uh, the expression of that force within the core, you can do that on its own as well. You don't have to connect all these things all the time. It's just understanding that when you when it comes to neck training, what those mechanisms are, I think that's really important and, and understanding that the terminology isn't just going right. When we do the iron neck, we're probably not just doing the neck. We're trying to actually connect these things together because that gives the athlete a greater ability to decrease those head accelerations. I know there's discussions around neck strengthening and, and, and training and testing, but 
because we're, we're talking about different areas, I think it, it kind of moves to that area naturally. So in terms of uh, trunk strengthening, I know this is a big topic and we probably could go for another 40 minutes on that. But what's your what's your philosophy? What does training look like with this that particular area? And how does it, I suppose, link back into the stuff that we've already been talking about? Yeah, it's a good question. And and I think the way that we try and simplify it is we look at, again, much like the neck, what, what are the uh, proponents of the core in terms of performance and or, or movement even if we break it down? Flexion, extension, rotation, and then anti-rotation could probably be four simple ways to direct that. But probably even within our own team here, we'd have different um, definitions of or even more definitions of what that is. I think what's important is understanding how that relates to our sport. Um, you know, in a lot of grappling situations, you're not just looking uh, – a lot of situations in MMA, you're not just looking to express force through a strike, but you're also having to try and move sometimes an immovable object. So there's a lot of static strength involved in that as well. So sometimes understanding the strength classification, such as fast dynamic, slow dynamic, static – and then the movement component of it is usually how we break it down. So do we want to use fast dynamic strength for rotation? Cool, we might use a chop. Do we want to use static strength uh, for um, anti-rotation? We might use a farmer carry. Something along those lines. Maybe it's bracing. Maybe we add that definition in there as well. Like So there's so many components, but I feel like that's the easiest way that we try and break it down is the movement and then the strength classification, and that's about it. Love that. Well, in five minutes, you're going to have a, a meeting, and there's going to be people piling your office. So I'm going to I'm going to t- <laughs> I'm going to take up those last five minutes as, as best as I can. Let's go. So, have you looked at any other sports to get influence in terms of neck strengthening, and if so, which and why? Um, I've just looked at the literature. However, um. I hope they don't mind me saying this. I was just down at Surfing Australia as well and I just love the discussions we had down there because this is the whole point of it. It's like this is what we do in MMA but your sport might not need to do that particular component but if you follow the neck matrix, it kind of works out. So they were talking about you know concussions being one of the highest injuries they have in their sport. Which and you wouldn't think of how, as, a, as a layman. Initially, yeah, yeah. no. Yeah, you'd think knees or shoulders or neck, right? But but they um they obviously have hard landings on the water surface and sometimes even boards hitting them. But I don't think that's a big component of it from what they were telling me. But even just some of the ideas around the reactive part of the static, a uh, reactive part of the the um, matrix was really interesting. They used a lot of trampolining work, so potentially adding very light loaded helmets that they have there. And then getting to do their trampoline drills while doing that. I mean, what a fantastic idea for, you know, if you're wiping out on your back, well, let's start doing some back work on the trampolines, back jumps uh, with this slightly loaded helmet. You're getting those perturbations and um, like the the reactive component from that. I thought that was a fantastic idea, but they're, they're similar sports in some way, but they're also so far apart in terms of the execution of it, but it still works. And I, I really enjoyed that. So to flip that question, is there anyone from other sports tapping into you for this? Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. Uh, had, a, had a lot of people reach out from rugby and Australian rules football, which is really exciting because that's a really prominent injury concussion within those two sports, as, as we all probably know. 
Um, and so far, that seems to be the, the greatest reach out, um, which makes sense. But I haven't really even thought about too many other sports. I know like in equestrian, that's such a, a really high level of um, concussion rates there from the falls and the forces that are going through the, the head and the neck. Um, and obviously, uh, soccer or football, um, is they're doing some great work there with Dr. Kerry Peak. She's um, doing some amazing stuff there and looking into that further. And we had a great discussion. It's just still where it has always been and we need to keep pushing that forward. And I think that's the whole point of doing this is getting input from others and trying to progress it forward because it's so important nice mate right i'm getting nervous now because um i'm pushing it i'm pushing the time so uh, push it anyone, let's go anyone that wants to <laughs> tap into you um the stuff that you've got going on in, the, in this area or any other area for, for, for that matter where's the best people best place that people can uh can get to know Probably email because that'll sit there until I can get to it. <laughs> um, but my email is gpratt at ufc.com. Perfect. Superb. Well, thank you very much for squeezing me in right before the, the meeting. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on. It's, it's been a pleasure. And like I said, right at the start, long overdue. So uh, thanks, mate. Appreciate it, Rob. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to episode 475 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Big thanks to Gavin for giving up his time and taking us through his next strengthening methods and testing protocols that he uses in the UFC. Also, big thanks to Team Builder, Rock Daisy, and the guys at Vild for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. Big thanks to you for tuning in. I look forward to chatting to you next time.